following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. This morning we'll be looking in Exodus chapter 20, uh, which is the, uh, what is commonly called the Ten Commandments. We're not going to look at all ten today. We're going to look at the first four. So we'll be reading from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 11. All right, let's read along, follow along as I read. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who keep my Uh, who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Um, Nate, can, can you fix this out? It's got way too much bass and mid-range. Uh, we come to the famous uh, Ten Commandments, literally... Um, in Hebrew, they're, they're not actually called the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's popular. It's what we have kind of come to know them as. But it's literally the ten wor- well, the words, literally just the words. There happen to be ten of them. Um, and uh, that's because they're really not given as laws or commands as much as they are given as covenant obligations. Um, and uh, I think that the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, are, are often greatly misunderstood and misused. Uh, and for Christians, for believers, uh, when we come to the law, especially the Ten Commandments and the, the other laws of the Old Testament, it creates a problem for us. And the problem is that the New Testament doesn't always speak real kindly of the law. For example, in Romans, Paul writes, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Right? Um, Philippians 3, Paul says again, Uh, For his sake, that is, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Um, The Jews and, uh, in fact, Jesus, uh, in Jesus' day, those like Paul, uh, believed that they could uh, attain a right standing. Righteousness means right standing before God. 
by keeping appropriately the commands and the laws. Um, but Paul, as he came to Christ, came to understand the gospel, realized that's impossible. Nobody can, be, uh, can stand right before God, can, can stand guiltless or blameless before God by keeping the laws and commands. It's impossible. And praise God, uh, God made another way through Christ. And so Paul and, the, and Jesus, the teachers of the New Testament, uh, tell us that, no, we don't, we, we don't get saved. We don't stand before God holy and blameless based on our ability to keep the, the law and the commands. Hang on a second. We're having all kinds of problems today. Okay, hopefully that will stay in place. Um, so, um, so then what do we do with it? What, what place does the, the, the Ten Commandments have in our life, or the Old Testament law for that matter? Uh, can we just ignore them? Do we just throw them out as meaningless? Right? Uh, can we just take some scissors and cut out these sections of the Bible? Well, since I'm preaching on it this morning, probably not. Um, what do we do with the, uh, the, the commands? What do we do with the Ten Commandments? Well, I think what we need to do is we need to understand their purpose. Uh, the purpose why God gave them at Mount Sinai to the Israelites in the first place, and really the purpose that they still have in our, in our life today. Um, they, are, they, are, they were never given and are not meant to be a means to justify ourselves before God. In other words, they're not civil laws that make us good citizens legally before a judge. And that's unfortunately how the Jews were using them. But really, they are about a covenant relationship. Uh, they are written, and it's the beginning of uh, this covenant between God and the Israelites. A covenant relationship. Uh, very similar, or much like our marriage vows. Okay, if you're married, you, you stood up before witnesses and before God, and you made a covenant with your spouse that you would... Uh, promise to love, honor, and cherish in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others till death do you part. You will make them your, your lifelong partner, right? Um, and uh, nobody really thinks about those, those covenants as commands, right? Uh, but, they, but they are a commitment. They're an obligation. They're a duty that we enter into in a relationship that, that really becomes the foundation upon which the relationship is built, Right, for marriage to work, it has to be built on this kind of foundation or it won't, it won't last. I found some very interesting, in the world we live in, you can find anything on, online apparently, some very interesting marriage vows. I won't read all of them, but I'll read a couple that are just unbelievable really. And these are real, these are real marriage, I didn't make this up, these are real marriage vows from a real, real wedding. Uh, this is a, a, a groom pledging to his bride. I promise to love and cherish you as much as I do our dog, Spot. From this day forward, I will lid roll the chairs whenever your parents visit. I will love you in sickness and in health as long as you take care of the vet visits. I promise to cuddle with you as much as I do, Spot, and pick you up treats whenever he gets some, too. Okay, um, I'm telling you. They, they, th this is not an adequate foundation to build a relationship on. This has this already got problems written all over it, right? Uh, if, this, if this lady is hearing this, she should run right then and there. Run and feed this guy to spot. 
Or another one. This is from a bride to her groom. Not the same one, different one. I promise to love you as much as I love my credit card and not hold your poor fashion sense against you. Praise God for that. Uh, I will only show you my new clothes during commercial breaks and promise to keep you in the latest fashions. From this day forward, I will make your I will make sure your lucky shirt is washed for every game day and we'll have plenty of potato chips on hand. (laughs) I will love you for richer or poorer as long as our credit limit stays high. Okay, again, uh, it's, 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 they're putting out there, it's, it's not commands, but it is a, it's a promise. It's, it's, it's a sense of this is the foundation that we're going to build our relationship on. Again, I'm telling you, this is not going to work, okay? Um, but God knows what kind of, what, God knows what kind of foundation uh, is strong to build a healthy, strong relationship with Him on. And we're not talking about just a relationship with another human being, but this is a covenant between us and the living God of creation. Right? So what does it mean to live with him? What does it mean to have re- relationship with him? Well, in, in Exodus 20, verse 1, uh, this is written after what's called a suzerain treaty, treaty. It was a common covenant form used in, in that day and in that age. Uh, we don't really, really practice these anymore. For us, it's more in the context of a marriage. But... Um, The first two verses really are are the preamble and prologue to the treaty. And it states who are the parties in the relationship and how did they come to have a relationship at all. And so in verse 1 it says, And God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. Okay, party on one side. God Almighty, Yahweh, who brought you, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt. So there's the two parties, God and the Israelites. Uh, and the nature of their relationship, he says, as I, I brought you out of the land of, of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We are in relationship because I rescued you. Is essentially what God is saying here. Um, I saved you. I rescued you. I brought you out of your bondage in Egypt. And I brought you to myself at this mountain in Mount Sinai. So you see, God's already, he's already saved them. He saved them not because they kept any laws or because they were good or because they were moral people. He saved them out of his love and goodness and he brought them to himself and he's inviting them into relationship. Uh, and, and these are the, the building blocks of good relationship with him. Uh, it's what is required for his grace and saving work to go forward from this point on. J.A. Packer puts it this way. Although that covenant, this covenant that we're talking about, required obedience to God's laws under the threat of his curse, it was a continuation of his covenant of grace. His covenant of saving grace. God gave his commandments to a people he had already redeemed and claimed. And the reality is, we can only be saved by grace. There is no other option because no human being ever has been good enough to be worthy to, to save themselves to do it in their own power or goodness. Okay, salvation is only ever a matter of grace. And it was true for any Israelite who ever lived. It's true for us as God's people under a new covenant. Um, but once you're saved and once you come into this relationship with God, like a marriage covenant, what are the building blocks upon which this relationship will grow and flourish and thrive. And that's what the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments are about. Right? It's, it's explaining 
the, the, the foundation upon which a relationship with God will thrive and be healthy and strong. So today we're going to look at just the Godward part of it. Uh, uh, the first four commandments are, are directed specifically toward God. The, the, second, the next six are directed in our relationships with each other. Um, and he, he gives us four what I would call building blocks or four explanations of what it means to love God with all your heart. Right? To be in that kind of relationship with him. So the first one is that we must love God exclusively. Or another way to put it would be to build our relationship on the building block of absolute trust. Okay, the building block of absolute trust. He says, uh, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. God will not share his place in our life as God with any other. So the, the question you've got to answer here is, what, what is, what does Moses mean here by, or what does God mean by a God? Right? What is a God? Well, of course, in our, in our worldview, uh, having received so much revelation from Scripture and who God is, we would identify God as being the supreme being of all creation, right? Who created everything, who's self-existent, self-sustaining, who is not dependent on any other, who is solely, singly, the God above of everything. But in, in uh, Moses' day, in the day of the Israelites, a God could mean really any supernatural being or power. In fact, the word in, in Hebrew, Elohim, is the word God, could refer to any supernatural being. So the angels were called Elohim. Uh, supernatural powers were called Elohim. And of course, the pagan gods that they worshipped were, were, were considered gods. Um, and, and so a God, what, what he means by God is this. It's essentially any being or thing that we trust to solve our problems and rescue or save us. Okay, any being or thing that we trust to solve our problems and to rescue or save us. Uh, it is an object or being of trust and worship. Anything that we love and depend on in an ultimate sense. Now, of course, we, we love and depend on people. We'll talk in a minute distinguishing uh, God from people. But what, what it means is that we, we love and depend on them in an ultimate final sense, right? Not just as a, as a fellow human being, but above that. Something that has more power to help us. Uh, and in Moses' time, it was, it was universally believed. Okay, all the people of the world at that time believed that the, the forces of nature were controlled by many, many different gods. So you had the god of the wind, you had the god of the sun, of the rain, uh, gods who uh, brought about uh, fertility for your cattle and your crops. Um, and so they would worship these gods, hoping that they would help them in each of these individual specific areas where they had power. Um, in, in the plagues, God demonstrates to Israel that he, he is the one who's truly the power over all these things. And that's why the ten plagues go through all these different forces of nature. And God shows that, that the so-called gods who control those have no power. That he alone is the one who controls uh, the, the Nile River and the flooding and the flies and the frogs and darkness and hail. Right? That's all in his hand. He's the almighty God who controls it. And so this command is basically saying, the first building block is that you trust in, in Yahweh alone as the one who can solve your problems and can save you. 
Right? The one who can help you through the struggles in life that you cannot fix on your own. God is the one who's big enough and powerful enough and able to take care of you. Uh, and, and in that, it's a, it's a trust that is exclusive. It's absolute trust. It's not trusting God and something else. Trusting God and good luck. Trusting God and rain. Trusting God and whatever. Right? It means exclusive trust in God alone as the one who can provide and care and protect and watch over you. And, and out of that, it means that our love and worship are exclusively to Him alone. Okay, the thing, I promise to love and cherish you as much as our dog Spot. <laughs> okay, there's, there's a lot of reasons why that's just not going to work in a relationship. And if I was counseling with this couple, I would say, hey, you know, when you say that, you're basically saying that your wife has as much value as a dog. Susie, how does that make you feel? <laughs> Uh, can't be great, you know. You, you reduce your love for your wife down to the level of a dog. Right? Now, of course, in this person's deluded mind, they probably think their dog is human. They, they need counseling and other reasons, too, I'm sure. Um, you see, what happens when, when we share our, our, our trust, our, our final object of trust with any other object, we bring, object, we bring God down to that level. We reduce God to be on the plane of that other thing that we trust along with him. So he says, your, your trust in me must be exclusive. You must trust, love, and worship me alone. Nothing else can be in that place. Jesus affirmed this in Matthew 6.24 when he said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus says you can't have this kind of absolute love and affection for two things. Right? You, you, you either love God or you hate Him and love something else. Okay, that's the nature of love. It is exclusive. Uh, now again, we'll talk in a minute. You say, well, yeah, but aren't we supposed to love God and people? I'll get there. We can. But in the, in the position, in the place of supreme uh, godness in our life, right? The chief place of trust can only be one there. And our affection cannot be divided. Um, now, of course, in our modern day, you know, do we have modern day idols? Of course, in, in, in many places in Asia, they do worship actual idols. Uh, however, most modern, at least in the Western world, uh, probably don't burn incense to the rain god to ensure a successful crop. Or, you know, maybe you burn incense to the Mercedes God, hoping to get, you know, a Mercedes dropped in your lap or something. We don't, we don't do that. Um, but, but are there other ways that we can have idols in our life? Absolutely. Because uh, it is possible to turn to many, many, many things to solve the problems of our life. Right? As the ultimate solutions to care for us and to rescue us. Uh, where we put our trust, right, in competition with God. Uh, where, we, where we seek truth in competition with His revealed Word. And uh, where we claim um, what, what is authoritative over our life. What has authority, what rules over our life. Those things can very easily be divided um, with all kinds of things in the world. Uh, we can turn to science and technology 
It's like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll turn to God. I'll pray to God. But when I get sick, prayer is really the last thing I'm going to do, right? Uh, first, I'm going to go to the doctor. I'm going to get medicine. I'm going to seek technology. Now, are those things wrong? No, they're gifts from God. But it's a very fine line between trusting those things exclusively and leaving God out, right? And when we do that, it becomes an idol, right? When we say, well, God, uh, you may be the great healer, but I've got better medicine. <laughs> My doctor knows more than you, right? Okay, that's making science and technology and medicine an idol, right? Or we can turn to things like wealth or pleasure or success to be the things that will bring us joy and happiness in life. Right? Any time that we are tempted to sin and we are drawn to a pleasure and we, we want to do that, right? we want to do it and we know that God has said, that's off limits for you. But we think this in our mind, we think, yeah, but God doesn't know what would really make me happy. And I know that this thing would bring me great joy and happiness. I will be complete as a human if I follow this. And so we reject what God has told us and we follow this and we have made that a God, right? Because we've said this, I'm going to trust this for joy and meaning in my life. You see, you can't do that and honor God and trust him to be the source of meaning and joy and purpose in your life, right? We've made it a God, an idol. The list can go on, fame, sports teams, superstars, uh, anything that we turn to, uh, with love and devotion and adoration, with, with trust, right? Uh, to take care of us, to meet our needs, to give us what we think will make us happy. And what happens is uh, their word becomes authoritative. Okay, their word, the, the word of this thing, becomes what, what is the basis of, of what's true or not. Uh, so, so we run the risk, even with, even with good science, of letting good science claim authority over Scripture. Uh, and, and young people today are faced with this every day. Do I believe what the Bible says, which is miraculous and supernatural, and in many ways seems impossible? And in fact, scientifically, it is impossible. And the, the scientific world, especially naturalism, the philosophy that all there is is a material, physical world, say, no, those things are impossible. Those things can't happen because it's outside the laws of nature and physics. Okay, we have a choice. What's going to be authoritative? What's going to be true? What naturalism says or what the Bible says? And sadly, more and more people, more and more of our youth are saying, I'm going to claim science is authoritative. But I'm going to let science define and describe what truth is, not Scripture. Well, then we've elevated science to a god, an idol. It's not that science is wrong in itself, but we've put it in a place where it does not deserve to be. God's word uh, you know, must be authoritative. It must be the final source of truth. Uh, or we have made an idol. So what about <clears throat> other loves? Uh, does this mean we can, we can have no other loves? If we're really loving God all out and making him an out, does it mean I can't love my wife or my children or my friends? Well, obviously, because God commands both to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, obviously we, we do need to love people. Um, uh, but the, the, the issue is this. Uh, we cannot love people in the place of God. 
God has to be in the supreme place of love and affection above everything else. He has to be in a class all of his own. Um, people, our spouse, our, our kids, nobody can ever be on the same plane as our love and dependence on God is. Uh, again, Jesus puts it this way in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, obviously, Jesus is using a hyperbole. He's overstating things here. He's not saying you should hate everybody, as in, you know, Goran trying to wreck their life. But what he means is that your love for God must be single. Right? And that our love for everybody else must come far below that, on a different plane and on a different level. He must be in a category all his own. <clears throat> That's the first building block, the building block of trust. Our uh, love for God must be exclusive. Anything else is idolatry. Second one, uh, the building block of truth. Okay, loving God in truth. Uh, verse 4 says this, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water beneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Um, Second one, he says, don't, don't, make, don't make idols, right? Uh, and this really applies in two ways. One, of course, it applies to the first command. It relates to the first command, not to worship false gods. And in, in, in Moses' day, every god had an idol image. And the way it worked, they believed that when you carve up an image, you make it, you, however you do it, you make some image of the god. And then they would go through this very special ceremony and uh, in this ceremony, they would invoke the God to come put a piece of its presence in the idol. Right? So in some way, the, the very God itself would be actually resident and present in the idol object. Um, and, and so it wasn't just that they would make, for example, you, you can make, they could make statues of, of angels or they could you know, make, paint pictures of, of things, of a frog. But, but when, when they went through this ceremony and believed that, that the frog God in, inhabits the frog image, right? And then it becomes a, something you can bow to and pray to, and you can communicate with the God through this idol image. Then it becomes, of course, a God, a false God. Um, and the way this would work, uh, they, would, they would use these idols to basically control the gods. And uh, the, the gods had supernatural powers over the forces of nature, but what was funny, actually, is they didn't believe the gods could actually feed themselves, right? So uh, that's why in, in, you go to, into the state, you go to idol shrines, and what do you do to, when, when you go worship an idol? What do you do? You bring it food, right? And you can look all over Thailand. There's a little, a little orange and a little, you know, 7-Up, Coke, whatever. Why? Well, because they can't feed themselves, right? So power over the wind and the, the waves, but can't, can't go to McDonald's, right? That's, that's kind of how idols work. So what, what you do, the worshiper would come and they would bring food, they would feed the idol, and, and by that you would obligate the God to do something for you. That's how idolatry worked. 
And of course, God says, no, this is, you can't do this because it's ridiculous, right? There are no gods. They have no power. There, there are no beings who have power over the forces of nature. It's false. But even if it were true, think about what you're doing here. You're trusting something that can't even feed itself. Why do you think it could help you, right? It's ridiculous. So he says, no, don't bow down. Don't, don't, don't bow down to these images. But it also has another meaning. Um, and it has the idea of, uh, of, of applying the same model of religion to Yahweh. In other words, do not in any way create an idol, an image, to represent Yahweh on earth. Right? To bring him down, to, to, to invoke his presence in, in, a, in an object like a, a bull or a calf or, or whatever. So do not do that. Do not do that. Um, and of course, the, uh, because it was how they were used to worshiping, it, it was a way to make God very tangible and real and visible. And we'll see this in a few chapters when they make the golden calf. This is exactly what they do. right? They're trying to make God real to them in a tangible, physical way. Uh, why, why were they not to do this? And, and why are we not to do this? Why are we not to, to be casting Yahweh into some kind of image or picture or representation. So here's the problem. What on earth could possibly uh, represent God adequately? Literally, what on earth could possibly represent God adequately? Right? Or what in the heavens or what under there? What in all of creation could really capture all that God is? Um, Any attempt to, to to capture who God is in, in, a, in an image of creation could potentially capture some of his attributes. For example, they would pick a bull because a bull was, was, was a sign of great strength and power. It's something you did not mess with. Um, and certainly a, a bull could portray God's awesome power. But in doing so, it would exclude his attributes of gentleness, kindness, and mercy. Because right, I haven't known too many bulls that were gentle or merciful. Right? They just would flat run you over. It can't picture bull, right? It can't fully capture all that God is. Um, you could perhaps try to imagine or conceive God as being like the vast stars in the heavens, right? Vast, beyond our reach, infinite in scope. But to do that would be to um, exclude his attributes of being very near and very close and very personal. And so that's the problem with any image we use to conceive of God, is it can never capture all that he is. And so such an effort in the end would be just a, a, a piece of him, a distorted reality of who he, who he is. And in the end, it would become just a false God because it's not really him. Um... Now, again, most of us would never think about uh, casting a golden calf and putting it up here in front and saying, this is Yahweh. Okay? This is here to help you visualize Yahweh and come up here and pray to the gold. We, we, we know that that would be wrong. Right? Um, but we are greatly at risk of the exact same thing. Um, when we cast God into our idea of what we want him to be like, when we make God after our own 
idea and image of what we want him to be. One One commentator puts it this way, No image conceivable to them can serve to represent God. They must worship him as he is, not as they can envision him or would like him to be. One of the scary things in the modern church is that we are full of people who have all kinds of ideas about what they want God to be, and that's the God that they set up in worship. And it is not the God who's revealed himself in Scripture. Jesus said we must worship God in spirit and in truth. Any building block of a real relationship with him means that we really know who he is in truth. That we don't make him up to be something different than who he is. And a very popular way to do this is to, is to single out um, one attribute to the exclusion of the others. Uh, now, does this mean that we can't uh, use pictures or symbols, that we can't have visual images of God or Jesus um, to, to make him somehow more, more tangible to us? Well, the reality is that Scripture itself uses all kinds of symbols and pictures to help us understand what God is like. Um, uh, And and so art, expressions of of trying to grasp with the attributes and character of God is not forbidden. But you've got to be careful with it. You've got to be careful. But Scripture has lots of images. He's a shepherd. He's a father. He's a mighty fortress. He's a shield and a strong tower. Jesus is described as the lion and the lamb. Right? The Bible's full of these images. In a little bit, we're going to see, in a few weeks, we'll see the pattern and design for the tabernacle, full of symbols that all point to God's character and attributes and help us understand and grasp something of who He is. Um, but here's the thing. There is, in, in all the scriptures, there is no single image that is said to capture who God is. Okay, so we understand that all these pictures are symbols that somehow point to pieces of Him but none of them express fully all that he is. Right? We, 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 don't, we don't put up a picture of a shepherd and say, this is your God, worship the shepherd. Right? No, we just know that's one, one picture, one slice of the pie, one uh, turn of the, of the gem of his character. Um, so there's great danger for us uh, of worshiping false gods when we reduce God to one of his attributes to the exclusion of the others. Because we don't like them. Right? Now, I'll be honest, there's a lot of things about God's attributes I'm not real crazy about. Right? That if I were to invent God, I wouldn't add that. But it's who he is. Right? Um, if we make God all about love to the exclusion of his justice, that's not who he is. If we make it all about his wrath to the exclusion of his compassion, that's not who he is. If we make it all about God giving us free will to the exclusion of his sovereign control over all things, that's not who he is. If it's all about his sovereignty to the exclusion of man's free choice and personal responsibility, it's not who he is, right? We have to take into account all that God reveals about himself in Scripture. Uh, A ways back, I had the chance of uh, being at some conversations with a missionary who I had to deal with who um, didn't believe God was a God of wrath, right? He, he uh, denied and, and just really refused to see in, in all the Old Testament and knew the countless passages that talk about the judgment and wrath of God. 
for him, he says, that's just, I just can't, I can't buy that that's who God is. Right? I don't want God to be that way. And so I refuse to see those things as being part of inspired scripture. I don't know how they got there, but they, they don't belong there because that's not who my God is. As I began to talk with, and interestingly, this person would consider himself to be a, a very orthodox Christian. And in many ways, much of his theology was kind of orthodox. But as you start unwrapping and unpackaging this, uh, because, because there's no wrath, no judgment, it, it makes the cross of Christ kind of meaningless. Why did Jesus die on the cross then? Well, to show God's love. How does that show God's love? Well, that God would die for us, right? But not that it would pay the... You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.